What a blessed morning it is already, isn't it, to be able under the peacefulness and the banner of an hour like this one to assemble and to gather. And we're so thankful, as was mentioned in prayer, that God has allowed us this privilege. And we truly trust and hope that our worship is pleasing and acceptable to Him. In fact, as we come to this part of our worship and give a thought for the next few moments to a section of the Word of God, I hope that you might reflect with me for a moment on this book of Ezra, at least the way that we noticed that reading a moment ago. Frankly, we will extract many lessons from the New Testament drawn in principle from some of these things that have been stated in the Old Testament even today. Let's make some additional remarks first to set us on a course of study as it asks us to look very carefully at an amazing and momentous event in the days of the Old Testament era. You know that in our reading through the Bible this year, we've now come into the month of December, of course, and we've now read almost 93% of all of it. Currently in the New Testament, our reading is right near the latter few books of the New Testament, including the book of Revelation. The Old Testament is one that, of course, is taking us through some of the minor prophets. That's all that's left. This, is, this morning's lesson, Ezra. The book of Ezra is in some sense a very intriguing book because of its historical setting. You and I will notice briefly some of those major features, but the thought to which it points us is maturity under the nature of what God would have His people to be. There were those in the Old Testament who were challenged to grow up and mature under the way they should have. And might we ask, is there that same thrust and objective for you and me today? Does God demand, does He expect that you and I be, become mature in Jesus? He surely does, and you and I will note that in some detail this morning. Along the way, note the subtitle. It was on that previous slide. Maturity in Christ, what do you want? I suppose that's a very open-ended question, isn't it? What do you want? If a poll was taken of most individuals, I suppose, in common society, and yes, what do you want? Some might ask for a fine job. Others might ask for physical love in this world. Others might ask for a position of influence at their work site or perhaps in government or other places. What do you want? In essence, you and I are going to notice that question was asked in the Old Testament, and there's much about it that challenges you and me too. As you and I think about what do you want, You'll notice on that slide that there are a number of references to Christian growth. It goes without saying, doesn't it? And you can perhaps think about some of those verses with me quickly. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. 1 Peter 2, verse number 2, Desire the sincere milk of the Word that ye may grow thereby. Ephesians 4, verse 15, a rehearsal, a reminder to you and to me, and yea, to that first century church in Ephesus about the features of, speaking the truth in love, that ye may grow up unto all things unto Him. In all three of those verses, there was the utility of that word grow, inciting and encouraging a progression, a maturity, a movement. Today, you and I are going to ask each of ourselves personally about that. And we're going to do so starting first with a rehearsal of that text we just read a moment ago. In Ezra 1, verses 1 to 4, 
you and I will not need to give too much attention to this, but in terms of appreciating the rest of the book, at least it would do us well to notice the following sets of ideas. The children of Israel, as you and I had studied in recent weeks, they have already been taken into Babylonian captivity. In fact, the book of Ezra, I'm sorry, the book of Ezekiel was written to them while they were there. The book of Jeremiah, many of its parts had directly foretold that 70 years was going to be the period of time in which they were in Babylon. As you and I come to the book of Ezra, that 70 years is up. The time has come that they have served the purpose of that captivity and God is going to bless them with the opportunity to return to the land of Canaan. In fact, as you look near the midst and bottom of that slide... They had witnessed so many things that seemingly were so terrible. When the armies in Babylon had come years earlier, they had watched that temple ransacked and burned. 2 Kings 25, verses 9 and following. They had literally watched Nebuchadnezzar haul off those precious golden vessels and golden cups. I'm sure many of them thought they'd never see them again. The 70 years is now up. And you'll notice God begins to move amongst the people of this earth and He does so in the way to bring about the promises that He had already made. In fact, last two statements on the slide. That was the, the nature of our reading this morning. God stirred up King Cyrus, the leader of the ancient Persian kingdom. By now, Persia had already conquered Babylon. They were no longer the major players on the world scene anymore. You and I had noticed in the book of Daniel that God had foretold that would be the case. Now it was the Persians, and God stirred up Cyrus, and Cyrus made a proclamation, verse number 1. As you notice, verse number 2 tells us what the proclamation was. The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. Cyrus, a Persian king, said, God has stirred me up to build or make available the construction of his house at Jerusalem. Verse 3, Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem. At this point, Cyrus makes an opportunity available to any of those Jews who were still in captivity any of them that Nebuchadnezzar and his other armies had taken so many decades earlier, he said to them, if you want to go back to Jerusalem, you have my permission. In fact, you have my blessing. I will assist you by providing various and sundry practical matters, but you can go back if you want to. As you and I close that slide, you'll notice the next chapters tell us Many of them went. A large number of them, in fact, chose to go back. And we have the detailed record in these opening chapters of Ezra that they did start to rebuild the temple. They began to put back in place a place of worship. Maybe among other things, we notice immediately a grand lesson in that. The first thing when they went back was not to build their houses, not to build the king's palace or any other particular governmental agency. The first order of business was a place of worship. And that's the first thing that needed to be completed. It's the first thing that needed to be put in place so that everything could be directed as God would have it. You and I will find as we proceed on in Ezra 
they didn't always go about that the way they should. They failed. But the intent to build that temple first leads us directly to this. Our first application and a lesson I think that will be very helpful and meaningful to all of us. Under the consideration of the word choice, we've already highlighted the nature. All these decades they had served in the place of captivity and now you can go back if you want to. Notice they weren't forced to go back. They weren't forced to proceed back to the place of Jerusalem and they weren't forced to build that temple. But they were invited. They were encouraged. You'll notice in light of that statement how well that describes the circumstance of, of Christianity, doesn't it? The God of heaven has made everything available for the salvation of your soul and mine. There is nothing that heaven needs to have done that, did, that was not completed. The orchestration, the affairs of time. Galatians 4, 4 still says, When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. The Lord Jesus Christ, He did come into this earth at the right time, at the right place, and He carried out the will of the Father exactly and completely. And that will led Him to the cross. And even in regard to that, He shed His blood so selflessly. And with that, the invitation is extended to you and to me and to yea, every person. If you want to go to heaven, you can. If you want to be faithful, you can. If you want to be a proper and dutiful and acceptable servant to God, you can. You don't have to stay in the captivity of the devil's army camp anymore. The point is, if you and I are there, we have nobody to blame but us. Why would anybody want to stay in the devil's army camp of sin? If you're in camp there this morning, why would you want to stay there? Given what the Lord has made available, the opportunity of sojourning in this blessed place of release from the nature of sin, why would you want to stay and yet there are untold thousands seemingly that prefer to stay in the wilderness of sin, to borrow that Old Testament reference. Look at some of these statements encouraging us to reflect on God's invitation. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What sweet words from the mouth of the Master himself. Notice he says, Come, and if you will, I will give you rest. I will lighten the burdens and loads. Now he doesn't say he'll take them away completely, but he says he'll be there as a source of encouragement and support for us. He invites us to come, Matthew 11, 28 and following. In addition to that, you and I could readily recall the events of Acts chapter 2. What a noteworthy set of considerations. On that occasion, of course, the church hadn't yet been established as that chapter started. However, on that day, there were Jews gathered and in sin they were because Peter directly said, You put to death the Son of God. By your wicked hands you put to death the very one that God sent. Notice there was an invitation extended. 
Some of them cried out, meaning, brethren, what shall we do? And it was to them and yea, to all that would listen that Peter by inspiration said, repent and be baptized. They were told what to do, but they had to make the decision. It was, it was left in response to them. Choice. To them, we might add that statement in Philippians 3.14. As you and I recall the very life of that one known as Saul, later called Paul, what a powerful example of what choice can mean. We know he was a strong proponent of Judaism and persecution of Christ until the road to Damascus. But then on that road when the Lord, in fact, extended to him a grand invitation. Why do you kick against the pricks? Acts 9 verses 4 and following. Paul at that point, gave his life, and just a few days later he was baptized. And he proceeded on a life dedicated and devoted to serving the God of heaven. He'd made his choice. May I submit to you and me, that choice, of course, you and I are taught, should be motivated by a strong element of love, which of course is based on what do you want. Back to the question that we started at the beginning. If you want simply to live here and enjoy all the pleasures of the flesh, then heaven's not for you, and it's not for me either. But if you want to go to heaven, and if you want to live right before God, you can, and I can. We have nobody to blame but ourselves. We might even extend this by saying on that day of judgment, if I'm lost, I can't blame anybody but me. I can't successfully blame the Holy Spirit, for He gave me the Word. I can't successfully blame the God of heaven because He put in place a plan that would produce my salvation. And I can't blame Jesus, for He executed that plan perfectly. How could I possibly blame any of them? I couldn't blame the apostles, for they dutifully carried out the work the Lord gave them in the initial bounds of establishment of the church. My friend, who could you or I blame? Would you try to blame your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, your employer, your neighbor, your teacher at school? You can't blame any of them. If you and I are lost, it's my fault, it's your fault. The choice is left to you and me. You'll notice as you come near the close of that slide... We are taught in the Word that that love motivates us to serve God supremely. Aren't we taught in Mark 12, verses 30 and following, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And that love for God should lift above the plane of this world, our devotion and our dedication, truly to appreciate the nature of the choice. Maturity in Christ... Do you and I want to grow up in Christ? Do we want to be mature in Jesus? If we do, who else do we blame but ourselves? May I submit, those Old Testament Israelites, though in captivity they were, they had a choice. If you want to go back to Jerusalem, you can. But if you don't want to, you can stay here in Babylon if you like. You can stay here in these realms of distance from the temple if you like. Today, if you and I want to remain in sin and we want to remain distant from the salvation offered through Christ, God will let us stay there. And He'll let us die there too. 
may you and I with wisdom not remain in that location. May we always, with a tenderness of heart, be quick to rush to the opportunities of faithfulness that God does extend. Do you want to be mature in Christ? What do you want? Thanks be unto God as we come to the close of that slide. We're reminded of passages like these. In Romans 8, verses 35 and following. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No other creature can do it. The choice is left to you and me. We learn, first of all, then in Ezra this morning about the essence of choice. What do you want? If you and I want to be faithful servants of the Lord, we can be. What about lesson number two? In addition to the concept of choice, may I ask you to reflect with me for a moment on one of the immediate consequences of that choice. If you and I then are to choose to be servants of God, that's going to require work. Think back to the book of Ezra again for just a moment. As you start that slide, you think with me about the following. How many years had it been since that temple was burned? How many years had it been since they had watched it be destroyed? When you and I reflect on the timetable of this book of Ezra, as well as other books we've studied recently on Sunday evenings, we realize in 586 B.C. the temple was destroyed. This decree of Cyrus didn't occur until 50 years later. In those intervening years, no doubt, Jerusalem was nothing but basically a heap of rubble. The wall had been broken down. The temple no longer bore any resemblance really to what it once had. If they were going to go back and carry out the work of God, it meant work and a lot of it. They were going to have to be ready not only for the journey to get back to Jerusalem, but for all the work involved in constructing that temple, putting back in place what would be pleasing to God. It wasn't going back for a vacation. By the same token, as you and I think about the calling that the Lord Jesus Christ has extended to us, if we accept that call, naturally with it's going to come work. Why don't we build that concept and look at this. We know the New Testament so frequently makes reference, doesn't it, to that which God demands of us. In Revelation 22, verse 14, last chapter in the Bible, Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Those that are blessed with entrance to heaven, notice, have worked. They're doing His commandments. And what is that statement that's so very encouraging in Revelation 14, verse 13? Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. That's a description of folks who, while here in the flesh, had labored, had worked. And then they were able to rest in a blessed place of God following that faithful end of life. 
As you and I think about all those characteristics of work, look at some of these verses. I know that you and I so frequently recognize and in fact appreciate so notably the great blessing of God that makes salvation possible. But what about the side of it that involves your response and mine? Paul said in Philippians 2 verse 12, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. To work out your own salvation, that set of activities and ongoing daily efforts of work and labor, how often are we encouraged to keep in mind about good works which are required of us? In Titus chapter 2 verse 14 and then again in chapter 3 verse 14, let ours also learn to maintain good works that we in fact may be involved in that which is for necessary uses. Good works maybe leads us to note that text in Jude verse 3. I'm sure all of us have thought many times about the way that that particular little one chapter book begins. Jude. The book of Jude was initially, Jude himself says, started with a purpose of he wanted to write about the earnestness and the greatness attached to the common salvation, the joy that comes with being accessible to the things of God. However, he quickly said, I recognized I needed to tell you something else. And so he changed the theme of his book. And he says, It was needful that I write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. That verb contend, C-O-N-T-E-N-D, it has to do with the thoughts relating to a struggle. An ongoing battle, if you please, to contend earnestly for the faith. The Christian life is going to bring contention in the sense of an ongoing necessity of labor and work. How busy are you and I for the Lord? Is the full extent of our service an hour or so on Sunday? What about Mondays and Thursdays and Saturdays? Is our life always a reflection of the master it should be? There will be many that won't particularly appreciate that influence and that example. That goes without saying. But are you and I faithful in all ways? And does the work of our life dictate and illustrate that? Just like those Old Testament individuals in Ezra served as you and I an example of choice, also an example of work. You'll notice as you come further on that slide, I've listed some of the specific works that the New Testament has described for you and me. Those works of teaching and instruction. That first includes ourselves. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Verse 15 of 2 Timothy 2. Are you and I seeking first to labor in our own understanding? What about the instruction of others? The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also? 2 Timothy 2 verse 2. This instruction, this attribute leads you to quickly reflect on a number of those other works. Works of evangelism. Go into all the world and teach the gospel to every creature. Works of benevolence. Do good unto all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6, verses 9 and 10. Those works characteristic of edification. 
under the banner of 1 Timothy 5, or 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 11 and following. As you and I think about all of them, how dutiful am I? And how about you? What do you want? And what do I want? If we want to be right with God, we can be. Whether it be this initial discussion of choice or now this matter of work, there is one more that it seemed to me fair to include in our study this morning based again simply on Ezra. It's the one you'll see on this next slide. It is the character I've entitled frustration in purpose. And I took that especially from the wording found in the opening part of Ezra chapter 4. In fact, in Ezra chapter 4 verse 5, this statement is found. And hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even into the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Let's fill in another detail or two if we might. Those individuals that we mentioned earlier who were given the opportunity to go back, we highlighted some of them did. They packed their animals and they loaded up their possessions and their belongings and headed out on a journey to the city of Jerusalem, or at least that arena again. When they got there, they found it in just as big a mess as you and I would have thought. But they set about working. They started and they laid the foundation of the temple and all was looking so positive and so forthright. But then something happened. You notice it's at the beginning of Ezra 4. What was it that happened? Adversaries began to appear. The people who already were living in that area didn't want Jerusalem rebuilt. They didn't want the temple constructed, and so they began to frustrate their purpose. They began to hinder them. They began to, in fact, in, to threaten them, being adversaries to the cause. You notice the text describes it as frustration and purpose. Are you ever frustrated? Am I ever frustrated? Are we, as a congregation, in relation to the work of God, ever frustrated? Maybe if so, we can ask, how did they deal with the frustration? Did they throw up their hands and quit? Did they leave the temple completely unfinished? Or were they, under the character of, again, the desire, the objective of what they wanted, did they find a way to emerge victorious? Did they find a way to do what needed to be done. You'll notice on this slide, in many ways, the story has an unfortunate twist at this point. You'll notice near the top, the adversaries on this occasion were successful. They brought the work to a halt. They laid the foundation of the temple, but nothing else, at least for a long time, was done. The temple foundation was there, but there was no structure on top of it. There was no place for them to worship as God had desired. They hadn't fulfilled the decree that Cyrus had given them. They left it all undone. For 17 long years, they did something else. They built their houses. They enjoyed their life. They gave no thought to that promise they had made to Cyrus. Finally, God stirred them up again. He sent two more prophets, one named Haggai and one named Zechariah, and they lit a fire under these people. And they went back to work, and they finally finished the temple that they should have finished 17 years earlier. 
And oddly enough, when you and I study the book of Haggai, we learn that they did in 24 days what they had failed to do in 16 years. 24 days. It's amazing what motivation and choice can do, isn't it? What do you want? What do I want? You'll notice many times we're going to find frustrations in our attempt to serve the Lord. Paul had it. He had a thorn in the flesh. And it appeared to be something that was a great agitator and in fact a hindrance to his work. But did that stop him? It did not. Paul, in fact, proclaimed and preached the unsearchable riches of Christ all over the Roman Empire. The thorn did not stop his labor. We might ask, what about that belief of John chapter 20, verse number 9? Jesus even admitted that due to their unbelief, the belief of those of that area, He was unable to work the great things and miracles He was wishing to do. You and I should then think, very carefully about what do you want. As you come near the close of that slide, you'll appreciate that you and I realize the enemy is, is abundant. The devil is all about us. Walking about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. We can rest assured there will be opposition. But if you and I want to remain faithful and we want heaven as our final destination, we can be successful. I hope today, among all these things, we've learned these ideas and we'll use them to close the lesson. It is a rather amazing drama that has unfolded in Ezra. That drama has brought before us this fact. God allowed those people to make a choice. But if they made the choice to follow Him, it was going to require work. And it also would mean frustration from enemies and adversaries. May we be so quick to say that the parallel to Christianity is easy to see, isn't it? God has given all of us a choice. If you want to be saved, if you want to please God, if you want to go to heaven, you can. But it will require work and diligence and dedication on your part and mine. And of course, it will mean that the devil will put you in his crosshairs and he will want to thwart your purpose, give you problems in life, and cause you, in fact, to sway from that era of faithfulness. Don't allow him to be successful. Don't allow him to win that battle. Just like they in that ancient era, we need to be faithful. Now, they waited 17 years to finish the work. You don't need to wait that long. If there's anybody in this audience today that isn't a faithful Christian, don't hope for 17 more years. Don't even hope for another month. Why not come down this aisle today? If you are one who's never been a Christian before at all, that could happen in a few minutes. If you know that the Lord died for you and you know you currently are in sin and therefore lost and you know what the plan of salvation is, we could assist you in a matter of minutes those sins could be wiped clean from your life. You could be forgiven of them completely. And you could be set on a course to live faithfully until the closing moments of your life in this flesh. If you have become a faithful Christian at some past point, you were baptized into Christ, you were added to the church. But since that time, you have lost your fervor. Maybe you've waited, not 17 years, but maybe six months or one month or maybe a year or longer. And you haven't been faithful in all that time. 
God has given you more opportunities, and He's beseeching you to come back, but the choice is yours. If we could help you today to pray on your behalf, we'd be delighted to do it. Choice, work, frustration, and purpose. We need the Lord Jesus to meet all of these things, and if you'd like to do that in a public way today, why not come even now? While together we stand and while we sing.